HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Sherry Bayer from All in the Industry. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Pulses. What are they? They're the edible seeds of legumes, and we know them as beans, lentils, and peas. They've been around a long time, and yet... Suddenly, they're all over the news and all over the food blogs. We'll find out, find out why, and we'll find out all about them today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And indeed... Pulses, or peas, legumes, lentils, beans, they've been around for, I'm, I'm not even sure, so I've called in an expert. And indeed, they are part, a very important part of, they were an important part of the diet millennia ago, and they are still, again today, and always have been. Uh, what I've done is um, called on one of my go-to resources for all things medieval Mediterranean, um, Clifford Wright. And then later in the show, I have a um, somebody who's going to tell us about the importance today and what's happening today with pulses, because whether you know it or not, 2016 is the International Year of Pulses, dedicated, um, organized by the U.N., and Tim McGreevy, the CEO of the Dried Pea and Lentil Council, will be with us later in the show to tell us what's happening today with, with pulses. But first of all, I'm going to know all about the history of pulses, or as much as we can find out. And Clifford, are you there? I'm right here. Thanks for joining me today, Clifford. As I say, you are my go-to source for all things medieval and Mediterranean, uh, or medieval Happy Mediterranean. Happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I know that archaeologists have, you know, discovered traces back many, many years, but there's also other evidences in the human diet. Tell me a little bit about pulses. Well, the interesting thing about a pulse, and just for the audience to know, the definition of a pulse is just simply the edible seeds of the various crops that uh, make up the legume family, peas, beans, lentils, and so forth. They are certainly some of the oldest cultivated plants known to humans. 
So the very earliest agriculture, which uh, has been dated to somewhere between 13,000 and 9,000 years ago, uh, have found uh, lentils, for example, for sure. A little bit uh, later, you find peas. But with that being said, it should be understood that the whole concept and the question of lentil domestication and the domestication and cultivation of pulses is still vigorously debated in the academic community. So we don't have any set conclusions as to its origins and so forth. Mm. But that doesn't stop them being uh, nutritious and delicious. So right. That's a good, that's a good thing. Well, when I, when I said you're my go-to source for medieval Mediterranean foods, and obviously you have done some research on this, and, I for, and then I did not re- go on to read your bio because I, I think it is important to do so, um, and that is that Clifford, Clifford Wright is a culinary historian and and contributing editor to Zester Daily, and he's the author of 16 books, 14 of which are cookbooks, and the winner of the James Beard Cookbook of the Year and Beard Award for the Best Writing for A Mediterranean Feast, a giant tome of wonderful information and recipes, and that was back in 2000. And your articles, Clifford, I know, have appeared in Gourmet and Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, and so forth, as well as as some other academic journals um, on when it comes to research on um, medieval Mediterranean foods. Uh, so, when you where whereabouts um, can you tell us that some of the discoveries of these pulses were made early on? It's basically, uh, in terms of the cultivation of them, it's basically the Middle East. It's all about the Middle East. So the earliest dating for lentils that we have is from a cave in Greece from about 13,000 years ago. So we're talking about Paleolithic era. Wow. And then there are some other sites in Syria uh, and the Jericho area um, around 8,000 B.C. And then in Turkey, there's a site where they have found lentils from 7,000 B.C., so they're basically associated with old-world agricultural revolution, prehistoric times. And the interesting thing is that lentils are often found to be domesticated along with einkorn and emmer, which are two kinds of species of wheat, and barley and peas and flax. So it gives an indication of what agriculture looked like at that time. Huh. And, and you are always referring to lentils. Um, were other types of peas, uh, ground peas, or um, or beans found at that time? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> the thing with beans is, first of all, when you talk about beans, um, you need to distinguish between old world and new world beans. So right. The bean, when we talk about beans, like the beans that go into uh, to a, a bean salad, let's say, those are new world beans, uh, known as faceless vulgaris in the language of scientists. And those New World beans moved to the Old World not before 1492, in other words, not before Columbus discovered America. The Old World beans, such as fava bean or hyacinth bean, uh, lentils and the various other ones like peas, those have an older history. As far as the New World, now today, Old World beans exist in the New World and New World beans exist in the Old World, so it's all mixed up. Uh, But Generally, when we think of uh, legumes, we think of uh, things like lentils and peas, and there are many others that are more used in Indian cuisine, for example, uh, the peas that are in legumes known as gram, black gram, red gram, and 
They have a variety of different names that are not too popular in the Mediterranean, uh, or for that matter in this country, but are very popular in South Asia. Hmm. And uh, chickpeas, too. I mean, I always think of chickpeas. And as chickpeas, a, yeah. chickpeas would be included in that uh, category as well. That's right. Right. And when you say the, the Middle East, of course, you know, it's no surprise because so many of the recipes that we know and that we rely upon uh, do have that Middle Eastern flavor or are of Middle Eastern origin. And, of course, hummus, which is all over the place today. I mean, who would have ever thought, right? It's been around forever. It, it certainly has. And there's been so many examples of those kinds of dishes that are just famous um, around the world. But they basically come from the Mediterranean. You mentioned one uh, being hummus. But just think of every single bean soup in Italy you may have eaten. I mean, all <laughs> those examples are, are fava beans. Or uh, if you were in Egypt, you'd be eating fava bean mash and, and so forth. As far as the other kinds of uh, legumes, in India, you have all the dals, uh, which are made from a variety of different legumes. So they're, they're real nutrient-rich um, uh, foods that have been uh, sustaining populations for a long time. All right. I mean, we know even from, um, from written evidence, uh, lentils appear in the Bible, and they also appear in some ancient Roman writings uh, Absolutely. I mean, the, the famous yeah. one is in, in Genesis, the story of how Esau gives up his birthright for a dish of lentils. And uh, we know that the ancient Greeks enjoyed lentils. There's uh, a great little uh, comment by Aristophanes in one of his plays where he says to another person, you who dare insult lentil soup, the sweetest of delicacies. So we know that the Greeks loved lentils. They also made it into bread. Then by the time of the Romans, you've got uh, Roman writers talking about lentil dishes being uh, eaten by the poor people. Uh, and then in Apicius, the first century Roman cookbook author, he's got a recipe, many recipes for lentils. So we know they're being eaten in a variety of ways. Yeah, And interesting because some of those early Roman recipes are not terribly unlike what, how, we, how we consume them today. Absolutely. I mean, it's they tend to be kind of simple. I mean, there's a little sprinkling of olive oil and maybe some uh, coriander and salt, and uh, very, very similar. Yeah. Now you mentioned um, the lentil making bread out of it. Were how often, or do we know, uh, were these legumes uh, ground into a flour? Well, we know that we don't we don't know how often, but we know I'm when. Often, Basically, when. in times of famine. So when wheat was suffering, uh, inferior grains were used, such as millet or barley, to be used into bread making. And these are considered to be inferior breads as well. And when it was really bad times, then um, uh, dried legumes would be ground up and made into bread. Um, but when you say bread, don't think of some nice fluffy baguette. You're right. talking about some pretty hard stuff. Um, but it was food, and that's all it counted in times of famine. And then in really bad times, they'd grind up um, uh, nuts and acorns and mix it, uh, sometimes mix it with wood. So it was a desperate situation. Hmm, that's been in the news recently, too. <laughs> totally different story, totally different story. Um, you know, it's interesting because the when you said in times of famine and lentils, um, different types of legumes, have for a long time been associated with food, foods of the poor, 
This is true. And interesting because they have made such a comeback, um, particularly for people who have chosen to um, have a vegetarian diet and replace you know, the meat with a, a lentils, um, knowing that we know that they have a high source of protein. Um, lentil cakes, lentil burgers, uh, you know, anyone who's ever had a lentil chip, you got to know it's a really tasty thing. Well, lentils are tasty. There's no doubt about it. All right. And, and the hummus industry is certainly something that leads you away from thinking that it's, you know, food of the poor. But then, of course, it, in, it's one of the greatest street food, snack foods throughout um, the Middle East. In Israel and, and uh, uh, places in the Middle East, falafel. I mean, what, what a terrific, what a terrific um, treat that that is. And that's... Yeah, it's a, it's a great little invention. These are kind of, uh, if you will, value-added foods where you take these basic ingredients and you turn them into a new food. So falafel being a new food, hummus being a new food, uh, and so forth. And those, that's what really cuisine is all about, is the transformation of these raw foods into cooked foods in a way of cooking them so that they are uh, reproducible by a society. By a civilization. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's no surprise that they were grown throughout that region. I mean, it was they are, you know, today a very important crop, which we're going to hear more about later. But at that time, I mean, obviously with farming, you know, the farming industry being not what it is today, but perhaps they obviously they knew a lot then. It was grown in an area that really did not have um, a means for irrigation. Well, certainly we know that the Middle East is uh, arid, but the development of hydrology and hydraulic technology has been going on since the very beginning. And the Romans had invented various uh, new means of hydrology. The Persians uh, invented some, as well as the Arabs. And so there are the tapping into aquifers throughout the Mediterranean. That was one of the great achievement of the the Arab agricultural revolution of the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries was uh, creating this um, vibrant uh, agriculture in in Spain, in Sicily, in North Africa, the, uh, and, the, and the Middle East as well. Hmm. And uh, so there's, there's this, these kinds of plants were able to be grown much better. Uh, wheat was grown, barley was grown, cabbage became uh, sort of this central vegetable, um, but nevertheless, the, the beans and the legumes really took um, center stage for much of the cuisine of these areas. Right. Well, and then we know that, you know, they, of course, made their way to uh, to the New World, the Americas, and and uh, to have a very important place in, in the diet. And what about taking you away from the Mediterranean area, the Middle East? What about in, um, I had read something where there were, uh, there was evidence that they were, made their way into Britain um, quite early. And Are you, you talking about the old world beans or the, the new? The old world beans. Yeah, they, they it's, it's very hard to kind of pinpoint in terms of how we know that the center of origin of many of the, the legumes is probably Central Asia or the Middle East. And once they began moving, they began moving because people moved. And so as people move, uh, they bring with them seeds, uh, 
to to create new forms of agriculture. So um, certainly it, it arrived in Britain, but I would doubt if it uh, it um, arrived before uh, the time of Christ. I would imagine it came afterwards. Uh, mm. But we don't have real documentary evidence. Yeah. Now, I had seen something written when, about the 11th century, so indeed, you're right. It was, yeah, you know, it was it quite be, late. Yeah. It would be much later, that's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, they are, you said they people would move and they'd, an easy thing to bring with you to plant would be beans. I mean, you know, yeah, and then beans, you had I mean. to take into factor the, the, the climate that you're trying to grow these things in, too. So not all plants uh, make it um, uh, when they're transported. But, for instance, when the New World bean moved to uh, the Old World, and its first landing was in Spain because Columbus came back and landed in Spain with uh, what he had found. And in his diary, uh, which he, he so he's writing in 1492, he arrives in the New World in October, discovers uh, the island, the name of which I'm forgetting at the moment, and uh, about a month later, he's in Cuba, where he describes, and in the diary, he uses the word favas, uh, which is the Spanish word for uh, fava bean. Mm-hmm. And he describes these favas as, quote, different than ours. So what he's discovered, of course, is the, the bean, the green bean, and, um, or perhaps the, the uh, black-eyed pea or cow pea. And uh, these are beans that were brought back you know, by the in the late, uh, well, after, after he returned from his first voyage. And then we hear about it by the middle of the 16th century, being grown in various places in Italy and Greece and Turkey. So it spread quickly. All right. Well, they are, as you mentioned earlier, very versatile food um, for cooks, as you say, you know, these, these new dishes, these uh, new foods that were created with them over the, the millennia, as I, as I mentioned earlier. And very versatile, and you just mentioned adaptable to new climates, new um, new places as people took them with them. It's it's no wonder that they have stayed around for a long time, and now taking on center stage and a new very important role in in our um, agriculture today. And I, I'm I look forward to finding out more about that as well. Clifford, as always, you are a font of knowledge, and I and, and I'm. Glad that I, to be able to call on you to to uh, give us information about some of these ancient um, middle medieval Mediterranean foods and well, it's been a pleasure. C- certainly pulses beans. It's it's something that I think people don't really give a lot of thought of, even though you know these. As I say, the, the food blogs I mentioned at the top of the show, lentil salad. I mean. Patricia Wells' lentil salad, once again, as you know, has been rocking the, the food blogs and food writings online, and, and um, you know, hummus has become such a major industry, and, and chickpea soup and, and beans. People are embracing beans like never before, and good reason for it, and uh, I guess it's in our blood, as they say. So, Clifford, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge, and to my listeners, stay tuned, because we're going to learn all about pulses in today's diet and today's agriculture and the importance there. Clifford Wright, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. Hi, I'm back on A Taste of the Past, and we've been talking about pulses. That is the edible seeds, the dried edible seeds of legumes, beans, lentils, peas, you name it, chickpeas, cow peas, black-eyed peas, all kinds of wonderful ingredients that go into terrific dishes. And today, more than ever, it seems that these beans, these legumes, these these pulses um, are making their way into our diet and our culinary repertoire. I mean, there's no better proof than the than the hummus industry, which is over it. Something like a like grown from a five million dollar industry in the mid '90s to now a three hundred and fifty million dollar industry and growing. Just amazing, um, and it's a good thing according to the USA Pulse industry. Today I have with me Tim McGreevy, and Tim is the CEO of the USA Dried Pea and Lentil Council, the American Pulse Association, and he is also a pulse farmer, so he has uh, you know, first-hand know-how about all of this. Tim, are you there with us? I certainly am. Hi, welcome to the show, Tim, and I I know that you have had your uh, your calendar filled with all kinds of events this year, being the UN celebration, the UN um, International Year of the Pulse, or the Pulse, what is it, the International Pulse Year? International Year of Pulses. Year yeah. of Pulses, thank you. I was getting it all turned around. Um, <laughs> That's right. What, okay, let's start there. What in the world inspired the UN to create uh, a year of education and, and celebrations of pulses? Well, pulse crops are defined as uh, beans, uh, dried beans, peas, lentils, and chickpeas. And they're a subclass of a larger legume family, which also includes uh, soybeans and alfalfa. Uh, but pulses are a low oilseed. Peanuts and, and uh, soybeans are very high in oil, actually oilseed crops. And pulses are uh, just the dry form, uh, peas, lentils, chickpeas, and dry beans, and are called pulses. Actually, the term pulse is kind of an interesting history uh, behind that term. The, the word pulse is actually from the Latin uh, root of that word, pulse, which actually means a thick soup or, or, or pottage. And so it has a long-standing history, uh, you know, culturally, as uh, these crops having a huge impact on uh, food security uh, around the world. So the United Nations designated uh, 2016 as the International Year of Pulses because of the role these crops play in food security around the world. Uh, they are uh, the lowest cost of vegetable protein that you can obtain. Uh, they are also uh, the lowest cost dietary fiber uh, that you can uh, consume in your diet. Uh, and they have the added bonus of being a sustainable crop. And, and what I mean by that is they 
actually fix nitrogen from the air and put it down into their root systems to uh, produce a productive crop. And as a farmer, this is a huge benefit because I don't have to put on any synthetic nitrogen uh, fertilizers in order to grow this crop. It's actually pulling uh, nitrogen from the air and fixing it in the ground. It actually helps my following cereal grain crop, generally wheat or barley, uh, to actually produce uh, a better crop. So it's, it's great for a uh, great nutritious crop. It's good for your health. It's also a sustainable crop, and it's affordable. So the United Nations uh, decided to recognize these crops because of its important to food security around the world. And, and as our population grows, you know, we're estimated to be at 9 billion people by the year 2050, you know, an additional 2.5 billion people. We have to come up with ways, right, to produce nutritious foods uh, that are good for your health and sustainable, and, and pulse crops are going to play a huge part of uh, providing food security around the world uh, by the year 2050. Wow. Very, a lot of information spoken like a, a good representative of the council, I must say, and a very important um, council to boot. Um, now, this is an international, the UN, of course, you know, has declared an international uh, year right. of the pulses. But tell me about America's pulse industry and, and how how large does that play in, and as you talked about, the the future of our food, the food security, you know, feeding the world well the the really great news uh, is we a lot of our pulse crops that are grown in uh, the United States are currently exported and it depends on the crop uh, but for example lentils uh, uh, which is grown here in the United States we export probably about 70 percent of all the lentils we produce in this country we export about 65% of all the dry peas that we produce in the country. Chickpeas is a little bit different because uh, chickpeas, uh, because of the advent of hummus and the skyrocketing market demand for hummus that we've seen in the past 10 years, we only export about 50% of our crop goes overseas and 50% has been staying here to manage uh, this market. Dry beans, it's a, a little bit uh, similar. Uh, we. Uh, consume about uh, 50%, uh, export about 50% uh, of the dry beans uh, grown in this country. So in terms of acreage, uh, overall, we, we raise about 3.5 million acres of um, pulse crops in the United States. Uh, we are currently grown in about 23 different uh, states in, in the Union. Uh, clear from the Texas panhandle uh, to uh, heavy concentration along the northern tier up against the Canadian border where the majority of the pulse crops are grown in Washington, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, uh, Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin, uh, large uh, pulse-producing regions. Oh. Um, now, the American Pulse uh, or the, the Council, the USA Council, uh -huh. do, you, um, do you have specific uh, specifics of who you represent? I mean, are they, these organic? Do they have yeah. to they say, you know, no fertilizers because they do fix their own nitrogen? Or what, how, how is that group um, put together? So there's a, a couple of different organizations. The USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council uh, represents all the farmers, uh, processors, exporters, and trade members uh, in the United States. 
and they represent uh, peas, lentils, and chickpeas. Uh, the American Pulse Association actually is a combination of all the pulse crops. So we also represent uh, dry bean producers, uh, exporters, traders, and food manufacturers uh, from farm to fork. So the American Pulse Association is the overall you know, umbrella of, of national organizations that represents the entire pulse industry from farm to fork. And our primary funding is actually coming from the growers themselves in their grower checkoffs uh, to help us out with research and uh, promotion. Hmm. Well, tell me a little bit about it since you are or you have um, grown pulses. Are you currently a, 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 have a farm oh, with, yes. with pulses? Now, oh, yes. yeah. for a long time, these were used as a rotation crop. Right. And now suddenly these they're a, they're a standard crop? Not suddenly. Well, they've, they've become a, an important part of my crop rotation, both from a soil health point of view, but also from an economic uh, point of view from my, uh, on my farm and, of course, all the farmers that, that I represent. We've had a, a pretty significant downturn in cereal grain prices here over the past six months. And uh, interestingly enough, the uh, pulse pricing has been able to stay fairly steady. Um, and in some cases, depending on the pulse, uh, lentils, for example, have really skyrocketed due to a shortage. But what we're seeing is, uh, in, in my tenure uh, as the CEO of the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, in the year 2000, we were producing uh, less than 400,000 metric tons of peas, lentils, and chickpeas in the United States. Today, uh, we are producing a little over 1.2 million metric tons, uh, basically tripled our production uh, in that period of years over the past 15 years. And because of the strong demand for a vegetable protein around the world and including an increasing demand here in the U.S., we've actually seen our prices increase. Uh, and that's a little counterintuitive. Yeah. You've had any kind of ag economist <laughs> classes, but uh, we've we've had this tripling of production, uh, but yet we've had an increasing in our, in our price levels because of the strong demand. Huh. Well, you know, I'm how so if you're not using them as a rotation crop, and obviously they're a cash crop at this point, it looks to me. But sure, sure. how? I mean, how are how does that aid in um, in sustainability? Well, what's great about these crops uh, as a farmer is they break weed and disease cycles as well as uh, actually putting nitrogen back into the soil for my uh, following cereal grain crop. So, you know, weeds is always a huge issue, and disease is a big issue in every crop. So if you were to um, just plant, you know, nothing but peas, 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 peas every single year on the same piece of ground, you would run into uh, all kinds of uh, disease problems. It's just how it works, right? It's about biodiversity and having good soil health. Well, the same if you're just planting wheat on wheat on wheat on wheat, you know, it's great to have these crops in your rotation because it's terrific for your soil health. 
And at the same time, it gives, uh, because you're not having to put on uh, heavy loads of nitrogen fertilizer and they're actually putting nitrogen back into the soil, it actually reduces uh, the level that you have to put on of nitrogen fertilizer for that follow- following cereal grain crop, which makes them really one of the most uh, sustainable and lowest carbon footprint crops that you can grow. Uh, on top of that, as a farmer, uh, this year we had really dry conditions out in uh, eastern Washington, where my farm is, just north of Pullman, Washington, and we had super dry uh, conditions. And the good news is that these crops are very low uh, water use crops as well. So uh, very important as we move into an era, really, where water could actually be our most limiting resource to have a crop that is low water use but yet still yields a high level of nutrient-dense foods is, is going to be very important uh, to the future of agriculture and the future of food production here in the United States and around the world. Well, certainly it, uh, it is an important crop for us to, to, um, to realize and, and support. So tell me about the, um, the council. How... Tell me about some of the work that the council does. I would imagine you're involved in education for farmers. Is that the primary business of the uh, the council? Well, it's a, certainly a huge component of of what we do. We really have four major missions uh, for um, uh, the American Pulse Association and the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council. Uh, we fund uh, research uh, on these crops, both agronomic functionality and end-use research of how to use our crops in different uh, forms of food. So that's a big component of how our checkoff dollars are are used. The second component that we uh, really spend a lot of money on is trying to develop markets, uh, provide technical seminars to food manufacturers and chefs on how to use these crops in a creative and innovative ways. What's beautiful about uh, pulse crops, they are so versatile. So we recently had a a launch event in New York City, and uh, we hired someone to make uh, green pea ice cream. And it was really good. (laughs) And it had, I mean, get this right, you're eating green pea ice cream and uh, you're getting a high level of protein and dietary fiber uh, in that ice cream. And, you know, it does have some sugar in it, too. It did did taste terrific, but it's it was a great product, and a lot of people just don't think of pulses. They think of you know split pea soup or or, uh, or chili, you know, with beans and lentils or chickpeas in it, and those are of course terrific products. But it's the new uses uh, that that are coming on board right now that are really so exciting for us. So uh, market development is a huge component internationally and domestically, and then uh, policy development, uh, you know, as well. Well, uh, to uh, make sure that our farmers have risk management tools uh, like crop insurance and things like that that are important to raising this crop um, uh, across the United States. And, and then finally, just membership development, uh, educating our growers about the importance of pulse crops and, and how to raise them properly uh, to meet a uh, growing demand. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that you uh, have a lot of very eager people who, you know, who 
want to grow these crops because they seem like a, a very valuable crop and also, um, uh, as you say, the sustainability portion of it. And it seems to me not that, I mean, no, far from me to say a, not a difficult crop to grow, but has fewer problems than some of the other uh, crops that, that farmers do encounter. Well, they, they're, you know, it's like any, anything that you grow, right? There's a learning curve of how to raise them properly and make sure that they're seeded correctly. And um, you want to get maximum uh, nitrogen nodulation on the roots so you get max, maximum, you know, nitrogen fixation. And so uh, there's a rhizobium that you put on that, uh, on the seed, to make sure that it, that it kickstarts that bacterial process that, you know, creates that nitrogen fixation process. Uh, you know, harvesting these crops is, is uh, depending on the crop, can be a challenge a little bit because they grow fairly short to the ground. And so you, the harvesters have to, you know, be pretty low to the ground and you don't want to pick up rocks and, and things like that. But, you know, farmers are, are you know, just some of the best people in the world and they're very innovative and they figure out how to mitigate all of that and get it in the combine and, and eventually into uh, you know into a bag so people can uh, eat and eat it and consume it well it's uh, it's just fascinating to me and um, as somebody who does enjoy all kinds of of pulses and, and legumes and and I love exploring new recipes, we were saying that that hummus and and falafel were new use foods for the new world. Um, but now green pea ice cream, well, we're going off on a whole other direction. <laughs> so that's great. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we we had a we had a chef that we've been working with at the Culinary Institute, and we had a whole group of uh, food uh, influence and, and, and bloggers at the end of January get together at the Napa facility in uh, the Culinary Institute. And the chef, he took the chickpea water uh, that had been cooked, uh, cooked chickpea water, and he poured it into a bowl and he put a, a wire whisk to it just like he was doing whipping cream, and he whipped it into a foam that you would not believe. It was tremendously tasty, and then he, he combined it with chocolate and made a chocolate mousse out of it. Huh. And that's the, that's the chickpea water, okay? That's not even the chickpeas itself. That's yeah. just the water, so we're not wasting anything. He, he was fun when he gave this presentation because he said, you know, you don't have to waste anything. You want to save the water, you want to eat the chickpeas, and you can make this terrific chocolate mousse out of the chickpea uh, rinse water. That's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and, and that is such, and that's we can do with these crops. Right, and, and not, no waste is a very hot topic also in today's uh, culinary it world, is. looking to the future. Well, pulses have been around, as we heard from the historian at the top of the show, they've been around for more than 13,000 years. So looking forward right. to 2050 um, to feed the world is not that far of a stretch, really, when you think of it. And no. it certainly is a good a, a, a good education for all of us to um, to include these in our diet. And, and I wish the very best to you and, and your group for, especially during this year, but all the years to come, um, in continuing the education and, and the, uh, the growth of this industry. It's been an education for me, for sure. Thank you, Tim McGreevy. Absolutely. We want to encourage everyone to take the Pulse Pledge. Go to <laughs> PulsePledge.com and get some simple recipes of how to use these crops. It's really great. Great idea. All right. Well, thank you for joining me, and thank you for listening. Again, this has been 
A Taste of the Past. And I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.